Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Gerald Diaz joins us today with his vast experiences in clinical medicine and medical education. As a co-founder of GripMed, an online medical image repository, he has formed a crowdsourced educational platform for referencing clinically relevant medical images. He began in radiology before switching to internal medicine, where he is currently precepting medical students. Dr. Diaz, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chase. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I think we're in slightly different climates. I noticed that you're dressed for a little colder inclement weather. I'm currently in Florida, I'm actually sweating, so it's weird for a, do, <laughs> to be sweating during winter. But Yeah, I think I've been spoiled <laughs> by this uh, California climate here. I think our Midwesterners <laughs> would laugh at both of us, but um, I'm recovering yeah. <laughs> from a slight cold. Uh, but it is, uh, I guess, a cold 50 degrees out here, <laughs> 60 maybe. I think today it's in the, the mid 70s it might have even hit 80 so ridiculous for having to use the ac inside when it's winter (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh, i do want to talk about grep med a little bit later on but first let's start with a question for you and your personal experience what is either the funniest or scariest thing that you've ever seen in a hospital setting uh so probably the most traumatic i would have to say was came as a third year medical student i was on my ob-gyn rotation really early on. And um, we just delivered a baby with a teenage mother. And the attending who I just met that day turns to me afterwards and asks me, she says, have you ever sutured anything before? And so I was like, where is this going? And I said, yeah, a pig's foot a year ago in lab. And she says, well, you're going to start now. And so she asked the new mother, she says, is it okay if the medical student does your episiotomy? And The young mother was like, "Uh, I guess, looking at me, and she could smell my fear. And so um, I I get set up, you know, I go down there, and I'm not sure if you've ever done this before, Chase, but there's not a lot of space down there. There's a lot of, you know, fluids on the floor, and it's just, there's not, um, it's it's a very uncomfortable position, especially as the first thing suturing. And so my hands are really, they're just shaking as I'm trying to get in place to to suture this thing. And so, you know, I, I get my first suture through, and I end up sticking myself. And so I have to scrub out and get tested and all that stuff. And it worked out okay. But um, I just remember just being really traumatized by getting put in that position. And I understand what the attending was doing. She's trying to throw me into the fire, get me some experience and confidence. But man, I, I really don't know that a medical student should be um, suturing down there. It's a, it's a pretty sacred place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a deep dive for a first experience there. Yeah. A lot's already happened to the patient so far. I really don't think that would be the best place to practice suturing, especially if you haven't done it in a while. I know we didn't practice suturing a whole lot during the the clinical rotations aspect and in class and lab. So (laughs) yeah, that would not be the most ideal learning 
scenario, I suppose. Yeah. You know, it makes me realize as well that it's really hard for patients to say no in those situations. Um, I really wanted her to say no, but she didn't. Um, but uh, it, it makes for a good story, I think. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, unfortunately that you stuck yourself there, though. That's a, a whole nother line of testing and, and procedures you have to go through. Yeah, thankfully, you know, most of them are tested pretty well as a prenatal. And so everything ended up okay. So what is your current position in education? What is your role now? I know you've been switching around a lot lately. Yeah, so I'm a general internist. I work primarily as a hospitalist. I think uh, I used to be a software engineer for several years before I decided I wanted to help people. I did medicine. Actually, like you mentioned, did two years of radiology training uh, before switching to internal medicine. Uh, generally, I work with medical students and residents on a you know, just a general inpatient wards rotation where you have a senior resident, two interns, a couple of medical students, and if we're lucky, a pharmacist and a pharmacy student. So those big general medicine teams that you see roaming throughout the hospitals. I think what's different about me, I would like to say, is I really like to, to focus on my area of not expertise, but experience. Uh, I like to teach a lot of x-rays. I like to teach evidence-based medicine things. And now, like yourself, I'm trying to branch out a little bit more to try to reach people at scale through GretMed like your podcast is reach lots of clinicians at scale. Awesome. So you're mostly or completely teaching in the hospital or university setting. You don't really have the community or private practice setting that students would go to, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And do you get to do a lot of radiology type stuff with them? I know you start off in radiology and for a lot of students, that is a very competitive rotation and hard to find rotation sometimes they're not usually available in a lot of schools or in a lot of locations. So uh, with your background in that, does that give the students a little bit more experience, a little more leeway in learning radiology and going into imaging? Yeah, you know, I, I think so. I think it gives them a big advantage in whatever they go into. Chest x-rays in particular, I think it's the one thing, if you really learn the fundamentals of reading a chest x-ray, you could take that to your surgery rotation, pediatrics, anywhere you go. But um, I find even your most of your third-year residents um, and most attendings are, are really bad at, at reading chest x-rays. I'm a little bit biased, but I think it, especially having gone through radiology, I think we have a different perspective. When you can see the patient in front of you, it gives that big advantage into how you interpret the films. And so I, I think I used to take it for granted a little bit during residency when I was training, but the experience I found, you know, every week or two, I make a pretty big clinical decision based on my interpretation of the studies that differs from the radiologist. But I think, you know, I really focus on x-rays because if you go to OB-GYN or something else, there's a lot that's so specific to that one rotation, but reading a chest x-ray, you can really impress your attending, I think, no matter what rotation that you're on. That's probably true. I don't know how much I remember now since it's been a while, but my pulmonary and critical care rotation was really, really good for mostly for chest x-rays and chest CTs. Had a lot of experience in that, which I did not receive in any other rotation. So having those more limited experiences sometimes and to really get down deep into a particular procedure or imaging technique is really beneficial to the students early on. Yeah. You know, I, I always say, if you really want to get good at chest x-rays, there's a wonderful book, Felsen's Principles of Chest X-rays. And it's, I think, the most high yield book in medicine. You can read it in a Starbucks at one day if you're committed. And really, I think it'll put you just at another level compared to all of your peers and would really make you shine on all of your rotations. I think the best way to learn is to make sure you're, you're interpreting the images yourself. But the reports from radiology, they really only put about 10% of what they talk about in the reading room. They really don't, you know, mention a lot of the stuff that's really subtle. And so it's hard to learn from them. The 
the best people to learn from are, are people like your pulmonary critical care doctors who see the patient who are you know in front of the patient looking at the x-ray and teaching you some of those subtleties that the radiologist will leave out of the report. I think that's the textbook that he had me read as well. It was very, very uh, influential, very useful, a lot of good information, yeah. easily distilled in like 120 pages or so. Right. It's like a very interactive format. I've probably read it five times. And uh, if you're a poor medical student, you can probably find um, a PDF somewhere online. <laughs> probably. It's been around for a while. <laughs> yeah. So what are some things that maybe a preceptor looking into this episode or looking to get into precepting maybe in the future, physician looking to get into precepting, what are some things that they might utilize as uh, like good qualities to follow during their precepting experiences? Um, so good qualities, I, I think I would say just, you know, people that really want to be there. I always say that it's really a privilege. I tell my teams to be working with them. I think, um, you know, talking to medical students and residents really keeps me young, makes you feel just refreshed about medicine in general, because the daily grind of medicine can sometimes get a little bit old and talking to patients is great, but really talking to residents and medical students is, it really just keeps you young, like I said. And so people that really want to be there, um, that really care about their team, that really just have enthusiasm and a passion for teaching. You know, a lot of people, I don't want to say they're in it for the wrong reason, but um, there's a lifestyle aspect to academic medicine and working in the big universities that sometimes, you know, it's really nice to have residents write all the notes for you and you get less clinical time and you want to do research. But um, the people that really want to be there and are really enthusiastic and passionate about teaching, I think there's so many different styles that people have. But I think that's the biggest thing is you got to be a good doctor and you got to really care about your team and want to be there and be enthusiastic about teaching others. I seem to run into that a lot. A common theme with other preceptors is people that are there for the wrong motivation, the wrong reason, or being forced into it, their heart's not going to be in it, and it's not going to be pleasant for them, for the students, and often for the patients. So that's a, a key component. Yeah. I think the other thing would be, you know, myself, I have a unique background in radiology. I, I found myself when I was a resident, you know, there's not a lot that separates your third year medical resident from a second year general hospitalist, for example. And so people, you know, learning from a subspecialist, like a cardiologist or a nephrologist, someone like that on general awards rounds for me was super valuable. And I think myself bringing that radiology background is something that I like to do that's different from other attendings and preceptors. Couldn't agree more. Yep. Having that specialized knowledge is something that, uh, again, it can be very difficult for students to, to find or for instructors to even be able to distill and decipher properly for the medical student population. Are there any things that you've seen in the past or things that preceptors should be aware of, things that could be harmful, just sort of obstacles to be wary of? Yeah, you know, I guess I would say, you know, a bad preceptor is really just probably maybe just a bad doctor or someone that doesn't care to work with medical students or a medical student or resident was kind of forced onto their rotation to have to take them on to work with them. So, you know, that and being a bad doctor, being out of date, keeping out of the literature. The one thing I would say that a lot of residents and interns have complained to me about other preceptors is probably the preceptors that micromanage too much. I think there's some evidence that shows that, you know, the more you micromanage, it really doesn't change outcomes. Um, um, but it really does affect the well-being of the residents and the medical students, you being there, second-guessing all of the decisions. It doesn't change outcomes, but it makes for a very miserable team. So I think being a little bit more laid back and allowing people to practice their own style of medicine and develop their own style, I think really makes for just a happier team dynamic and environment and just giving people autonomy, you know? Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about that, but in any sort of leadership role, especially in business, you hear that all the time. Micromanagement is not beneficial to the team, to the company, and the same principles would likely apply just as well to precepting and to the healthcare system. Yeah. Are there any types of mistakes maybe that you've seen others make? 
as far as I suppose it could be anything, whether it be security concerns or safety for themselves, for their patients, anything along those lines that are things that maybe do occur and that have provided a great learning experience for you or for someone else? Um, you know, I guess I would say a mistake of my own I found when I first became an attending was not really setting the expectations up front. I think when you get to know me when I was a resident, I think people knew that I was sort of laid back and I let people practice their own style with my interns, especially I tried to give them as much autonomy. Um, but I, I found when I was an attending, I don't think I set those expectations up front. And so people found themselves trying to guess what I was thinking when really I wanted them to put themselves out there and, and make decisions for themselves. And so really, I think I found with my teams for medical students and residents and interns is I found just, you know, making a one sheet of set of expectations to give them up front, what I expect from them in terms of what their responsibilities are from the medical students down up to the residents. You know, I think that really set the tone a little bit better in terms of what I'm expecting out of everybody. So that's a mistake that I made. Other than that, I think, um, you know, as a medical student in particular, it's really hard to, to hurt patients. Um, I always tell medical students that, um, you know, you've got your interns there, your residents and me providing all of the experience. And so they can't take things too personally when patients don't do so well. I think you know, medical students often take that a little too personally, but I do tell them that, you know, you might be surprised how much they can make a difference in terms of affecting outcomes in a positive way, because, you know, your team is just so busy with 20 patients that it's very easy for us to overlook certain things. And so that's the thing that I try to stress to medical students is that they can make a positive difference, but not so much that they can harm patients. I think that sort of safety net probably makes them feel a lot more comfortable in their decision-making process and lightens the anxiety a little bit that students can feel when they take responsibility for patients. Yeah, agreed. Are there any particular examples that you can think of where uh, you might use the one-minute preceptor model, the five-step model of get a commitment, probe for supporting evidence, reinforce what was done well, guide about errors, or teaching a general principle? Yeah, you know, um, I must say, I haven't ever really studied formally medical education, but my own style is sort of intuitively very similar to the one-minute preceptor model. You know, I really tell medical students, especially, I want them to put themselves out there, you know, wrong or right. I want them to have a certain, you know, reasoning for what they think is going on and to just, when they're presenting on rounds, when it's time for the assessment and plan, really just, you know, put their nickel down in terms of saying what they think is going on and why. And, you know, if I can gather the evidence for that and try to teach basic principles uh, that will support or sort of refute what's going on and try to leave them with high yield pearls here and there that they can take with them that they'll remember for the next rotation and uh, the next preceptor that they have. Yeah, it seems to be another thing is a lot of preceptors kind of intuitively use these without knowing about the model necessarily. And, and I suppose that's really good. And that is what makes the model seem like a very good model to assess based off of since it's pretty intuitive and very powerful. Yeah, but I, I think, yeah, definitely being high yield in terms of you know not spending forever droning out about certain topics and keeping things down short definitely makes things stick a lot better with medical students. Yeah, we should go uh, use that advice for lecture halls as well. <laughs> yeah, agreed. That's why I love podcasts so much. Yeah. I want to take a brief moment to thank all of you for listening to the show so far, and I do hope you're enjoying it. We have a lot more content to come. We're already planning on season two, which is going to stray away from focusing on preceptors, educational advice, and getting a wider range of advice from a wider range of specialties in the medical field and really branching out maybe into some subspecialties and occupations you've never heard of. We really want to get a wide overview, a general overview of much more of the medical education system and how it functions and why it functions this way, and maybe how to improve it a little bit. 
I also want to say to those that are not familiar with my other show, the Medical Nemesis podcast, we just released a really good recap of the 2019 highlights. This is the first of a several part miniseries that really sums up all of the best information from the entire year of 2019, so it'll save you a lot of time. So if you're able to right now, please go on your podcast player, find The Medical Nemonist, download episode 46, or subscribe to the show in general. We have a lot of interesting material coming on there, and 46 is just the first of this miniseries. You can also go to freemeded.org slash podcast to see all of our great shows. And now on with today's episode. For students, especially those that might want to have a rotation with you or in a similar clinical scenario, what are some things that you would expect before they begin? Um, you know, so it's, it's hard to prepare for internal medicine. I think internal medicine is just so broad that um, you could try to pre-read or anything like that, but, um, you know, there's just so much, it's, it's so hard to prepare. And so I think, you know, general expectations for someone going to internal medicine rotation is just a lot of enthusiasm and excitement and a willingness to learn. I, you know, I always tell medical students, especially third year, that I was not someone that actually enjoyed third year medical school. Um, I think it's really, really hard. So I have a lot of empathy for medical students. I, I think I enjoyed more of the first two years of medical school. I liked sipping my coffee in the library. I was really good at taking tests. So I enjoyed that part of it. But third year is a grind, you know, and it's a, it's a game and you sort of have to play the game a little bit. And I think a lot of preceptors don't acknowledge how bad we are at, you know, really telling who's enthusiastic and who's being real and who's being fake. Um, and so I, I think you have to, especially if you're not naturally good at schmoozing and talking to people and selling yourself, you really have to try to strategically put yourself out there and play the game a little bit. And so, yeah, it's, it's really hard, but, um, you know, just being enthusiastic, able, and uh, that's probably the best thing you could do for something so broad like internal medicine. I can imagine from the preceptor's side, yes, they have a full patient load, being able to know what's going on inside each of their, their students and interns and residents' uh, minds would be very difficult. And for the students, uh, most review materials for clinical medicine or for the step two, for instance, that's based mostly on clinical medicine, I'd say 90, 95% of it is internal medicine. So yeah, it's very overwhelming on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not unique to internal medicine, but I think one thing that I would do again if I was a third year medical student is, you know, really try to prep yourself before going into each rotation. And so developing, you know, that weekend after your shelf exam, the times when I partied with my friends, um, that was fun. But the times when I sat down and just tried to get a few chapters read ahead of time in terms of whatever high yield book is in vogue now, because my, my, advice is a little bit out of date. But the more you can prepare yourself for that rotation, especially for rotation-specific knowledge, the more confident you will feel heading into that first week. And I always say, you never get a second chance to make that first impression. And so that confidence breeds additional confidence. So if you have a chance to knock out a few chapters and feel like your knowledge base is a little bit ahead of your peers, that's going to show when it's time to give presentations, when you get pimped during rounds, and it's going to just make you more confident throughout the rest of your rotation. Yeah, preparation can help reduce that cognitive load and reduce anxiety throughout the whole experience. Are there any maybe special demographics or special populations that you serve in your hospital? Um, you know, now I just moved to a very poor county hospital. And so I would say so many of our patients here, they're, they're just amazing. They don't speak English, which is the one downside, but um, it's something we have to learn to deal with. Um, but they're just so grateful for all of the care that they get. And so I think that's the one thing that that's just strikes me now about my specific patient population. So it's probably a little more difficult for students rotating with you as well, unless they 
speak uh, multiple languages? Yeah, it's just something that you have to learn to deal with in terms of we've got these great iPads that um, allow us to do video interpretation. And so it probably takes twice as long to talk to the patients. Um, but it's also a learning point is that sometimes I try to get by with my Spanglish or with nonverbal communication. But uh, those sometimes those patients will, will burn you when you don't have a chance to really go through a thorough review of systems. And it turns out there's something else that's hiding that you might have missed because you're, you're just trying to shortcut the process. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so that's a unique potential roadblock that uh, that students or physicians going into that type of clinical setting might need to be aware of. Yeah. So you mentioned that a lot of resources that you probably used before might be out of date, so not necessarily up to date on what is the newest out there, what's the most popular, but are there any things that you would still find very useful for preparation for internal medicine rotation? You know, Preparing for the, the rotation, I think um, I, would, I would ask your upper classmates, you know, what's in vogue in terms of question banks and things like that, in terms of high yield things like podcasts such as yours. You know, I always tell people, our medical students, you know, find an upperclassman who's less smart than you, but does really successful that honored all of their classes and ask them for concrete advice in terms of what books to use. Because again, my, you know, outside of that Felsen's book, I think my, the books that I use way back in the day are way out of date. You know, I would say, Preparing for medicine is so hard. In terms of maybe pearls for how to excel during your medicine rotation, maybe I could offer a little bit more advice for that. You know, I, I would say make sure that you read up on the top one or two problems on up to date or some other resource and really have down, you know, what those two problems are and, you know, read up on the current literature and all the evidence for that. Thing. Because very often, you know, what your resident does or what your internal, what your intern does or what I do is stuff that my resident taught me when I was an intern and things change so fast. And so sometimes just a timely question about like, oh, why aren't we using this guideline that just came out this past year? Something like that can really impress your attendings. Let's see what else? I think, you know, I would tell medical students as well is to really rehearse and practice your presentations. These days, you know, I struggle to remember what I was doing with all that time that I had when I only had two or three patients to see in the morning. You know, what did I do during those three or four hours? But whatever you're doing, I know it's hard to get all that information, block off 10 or 15 minutes to find a closet somewhere and practice your presentation really. And, you know, find your resident, find your intern and practice with them and come up with a plan. Uh, like I mentioned before, is um, it doesn't matter if your plan is right, if it's wrong, if it's your plan, or even better, if it's the resident's plan, but you have to own that plan and be confident. And, you know, the more you practice, you're, the better you're going to sound during rounds. And so what I don't like during rounds is when you hear patients kind of stutter, or not patients stutter, but medical students sort of stutter. And at the end, their voice sort of falters, and you can see them looking towards the intern or the resident for help. And they sort of end their statements with a question mark like, yeah, we're going to treat with Lasix. It just, you know, because I always have a plan, the resident usually has a plan. And so it's, it's okay to be wrong, but um, it makes you a lot more confident when you put yourself out there. Isn't that just sort of how millennials talk? Every sentence ends in a question mark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it makes you really, uh, when, when your resident is confident, when your intern's confident, when your medical student's confident, it gives me confidence. That's what I like to tell them. And it makes me assume that they're really know what they're doing and that they've done their homework in terms of having their plan. And that perfectly segues. I was going to ask, how can you excel in a rotation and what to do to ask for letters of recommendation? So uh, I suppose the rehearsal really coincides with how to excel, but are there particular ways that you recommend students ask for a letter of recommendation? Um, you know, I think it's been said before on your podcast, but um, really ask, go out of your way to ask for a strong letter of recommendation. Because I think if they say yes to that, they're really committing 
to doing what they said, which is writing you a strong letter of recommendation. So I, I will say that I've had, you know, maybe less than stellar medical students ask me for a letter of recommendation. And because I'm sort of a wimp and I didn't want to say no to them, um, I found myself writing them a very strong letter of recommendation because I didn't want to lie. Okay. And so they'll either say no, or they'll sort of be forced into honoring their word, which is to write you a strong letter of recommendation. So that's one thing. I think, you know, another good piece of advice is to try to set up some time to meet with them again, to remind them who you are, to just ask them for advice, to spend that 20 minutes with them, asking them for career advice, life advice, all of those different things. And then maybe say one of the reasons that you ask them for all of this is to be able to ask them for that strong letter of recommendation. And then in terms of making it easier for your preceptor, um, you know, I had a medical student, she, you know, not only should you, you know, give them a copy of your CV, your personal statement, but even sometimes highlight some of the things that you want mentioned in terms of your letter of recommendation. One student, I think, you know, just kind of mentioned several patients that were very memorable that we worked with together and what she most took out of the rotation. And so things like that to sort of help us remember who you are, because we work with so many you know, medical students, it's sometimes hard because they, they do blend in sometimes. That's that's great. So I haven't really thought about that before. There are a few preceptors that have mentioned ask for a strong letter, but not really how that works. And it is kind of a, a almost getting them into a contract with you. They're either going to say no, in which case you didn't want a weak letter from them anyway, or they're now almost obligated to give you a strong letter. So it, it works out for both parties, really. Yeah, it's it's really you know a psychological thing. I think yeah, it's um yeah it's it's hard to write someone a mediocre letter when you feel like you've told them that you would not. So, oh boy, I'm not sure if I actually specified strong in my past LOs. <laughs> yeah, so strong I think or enthusiastic, you know, all of those terms. And then it it really is good to just feed them some you know highlights about your career and what exactly you think stands out the most about you that you would like highlight it that's not just obvious from your CV. Perfect. Got it. So is there anything that you would have done differently in your education or in your current career? Um, you know, I, I would say just, I can't think of too much. I would say, you know, one thing in general is just, you know, advice that I give people that I don't necessarily take myself is to really seek out mentors. I think people, especially in, in the academic centers, they really want to help you. And so if you want research opportunities, if you want advice, if you want someone to make a phone call for you, don't be afraid to ask for that help because generally people, people want to help you. That's advice I give to people struggling to get into medical school. If your residency that you're applying to hasn't responded to you, you know, make some phone calls, make some emails. Um, it can only help you, I think. Um, and people generally want to help out as well. Yeah, it's so difficult to find coaches, mentors, really knowing where to look. And I constantly tell people, look towards those making materials, look towards those with podcasts, look towards those that have websites. If they are taking the time to go out and create these materials that take hours and hours and hours every week, they might take a few minutes here and there and help you out, or at least maybe have a resource that they can guide you towards. Yeah, I agree. If there is one dream that you would like to see in medicine in your lifetime, what would it be? Oof, a dream that I'd like to see in my lifetime. I, I'm not sure. I, I would say the, the one thing that strikes me all the time is just how burnt out physicians are. And so I, I just don't have a good solution for how to fix the crisis of medicine is that so many clinicians that you see, you take the best and the brightest people that are applying to medical school. And by the end of this whole process, you see so many of them are just mentally and physically drained. And so if, uh, if someone could figure out how to, how to fix some of that, um, I mean, that's... Um, 
most of us, you know, went into this because we want to help people. And um, this is supposed to be very fulfilling from that standpoint. And so if, if someone can fix that, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I definitely agree. So what a lot of our materials try to guide towards too is learning more effectively, kind of advocacy, possibly for maybe a competency-based curriculum, uh, more self-paced, that'll allow a wider range of current students and potential future physicians to work through their challenges that are unique to them and not have to follow a very strict academic path as, as we currently do. Yeah. So as far as Gret Med goes, um, I was looking at it earlier. It's very interesting. I almost want to compare it to like a Pinterest for medical disorders. Would that be accurate or is that underrepresenting just how much material you have on there? No, that's a, that's a pretty good analogy. We're sort of like Pinterest or Instagram or Google image search, but specifically for medical reference space. Another analogy I kind of like is we're sort of like TikTok versus YouTube. And so up to date or Dynamed, these sorts of things are really in-depth really, they're basically textbooks that have been thrown online. And so when I'm busy, when I have to see 20 patients in the ER, sometimes I think I better look this up and I pull up something on up to date and I'm just overwhelmed. And so what I'm really looking for is just that picture, you know, hyponatremia, what's that algorithm that just reminds me of those cues of things that I might've forgotten to think about. Stuff that we already know that you already learned, but stuff that's very high yield in terms of, you know, you go to any ER office or primary care doctor's office and you see all these protocols and guidelines taped up to the walls, all these pocket cards that we have. I think all of those you should be able to access on your phone. And um, I found myself just, you know, keeping photo albums of everything, but those photo albums would get buried underneath vacation pictures, food pictures, all this other stuff. And I couldn't find them again. And so I think if, you know, there's something that's high yield for me, like a hyponatremia algorithm, probably something that other people, other doctors would like to use as well. And so we're sort of crowdsourcing this in terms of the sharing of these high yield images, infographics, decision aids, physical exam findings, point of care ultrasound, stuff that you might share during a conference to 30 people. Um, why not share it with the internet with millions of other people? Yeah, I couldn't stand when certain aspects of textbooks or even lecture slides, PowerPoint presentations would not have adequate imaging. And you get this all the time on like question banks where they'll have paragraphs that you have to read through that are trying to almost poetically describe this disease process or this patient presentation. Like just show a picture. It makes so much more sense to show the picture and see what's going on. And at least, especially for me, it just intuitively more comprehensible than trying to read all this text-based information. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. A picture is worth a thousand words. And, you know, I found myself and my colleagues, you know, one, we just found myself just always using Google image search, um, which is actually pretty great. But uh, the problem is so much of Google image search is just patient oriented stuff, stuff behind paywalls. And so it gets pretty frustrating from that standpoint as well. Yeah, I definitely run into that before, especially when I made an online class and I was trying to add images and I, I don't know which ones of these I can use. So trying to search for open source images can take hours to get just a couple of slides and pain in the butt. But I'm really glad to see this source that's easy and intuitive and, and like you said, more in depth. It's not just for the patient view, it's for the clinician and students view. So much more interesting images. Yeah, it's also, I think, a way for medical educators to share stuff with the world. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of people like yourself, the free open access medical education movement that are sharing things on Twitter, on Instagram. But, you know, unless you have a big following, unless you've got 5,000, 10,000 followers, nobody sees it, you know, and it'll be up there for a day or two and then it's gone. 
Um, on our platform, it's evergreen and we're exposing you to Google's traffic. And so we get about 300,000 image impressions per day. And our most popular image has been seen over 3 million times. And so it's a, it's a lot more exposure than you get through something like Twitter or Instagram, actually. Wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty significant. And I did notice that you have a, a mnemonic section on there. And being that my other shows, the, the Medical Nemesis, we cover a lot of mnemonics. I have some things that maybe I can add to that section that aren't just acronym based, which you know, in that show we cover, we don't like as, oh, as yeah. much and not as strong. <laughs> That'd be great to collaborate, actually. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Are there any other last minute recommendations or where can the audience find you? Um, yeah, you know, if any medical students are interested in um, joining our team or collaborating with us, I would say just find us online. It's GREPMED, G-R-E-P-M-E-D. That's an old Unix term. It's a, a, probably a relic of my old career. It might not have been the best name, but I, I'm rather fond of it. Um, but find us on Instagram, GREPMED, or Twitter, GREPMEDED, and uh, reach out. Um, we'd like to, to talk to you. We're looking for subspecialty editors, you know, psychiatry, um, urology, that sort of thing to help improve our database. I was wondering where that name came from. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a Unix command for extracting data out of very large text files. Okay. So we went full nerd with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. Well, Dr. Gerald Diaz, thank you so much for coming on the show oh, today. Thank you, Chase. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Thank you. Thank you.